Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? In this episode, I speak with Stephanie Brendel of Shark Allies. Stephanie's had a very long relationship uh, working with sharks, but one of the really cool things about her is she was instrumental in the first ban of the trade of shark fins in the whole nation. So that took place in Hawaii um, you know, a few years ago. So I think this is a really important episode, um, really timely as well. There's always, every summer, a lot of sensational coverage of sharks in the news. I got a thirsty pup in the background. Uh, but sharks are not only misunderstood, they're absolutely essential to ocean health. So in this episode, we talk about her experiences diving, we talk about shark fitting in general, um, and we talk about you know what other products will have shark byproducts in them. Um, so one of the things Stephanie mentions is like, hey, how important it is to follow Shark Allies. So I've left the links below in the description, but it's essentially just Shark Allies across the board. Man, is he thirsty. On that note, uh, yeah, on that note, while you're on social media, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe this podcast. It would be awesome, especially if you like it. If you don't like it, hit the bricks. Um, no, but just especially if you like it, it helps so much. I'm reading about that. Um, yeah, so shameless plug, and I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. All right, today I chat with Stephanie Brindle. She's the executive producer for the film Extinction Soup and founder and president of Shark Allies. She's been diving with sharks since she was a teenager and has since spent many years as an underwater photographer and videographer. She founded Shark Allies in 2007 in Hawaii and brought it to California in 2014. And as Extinction Soup depicts, she was a huge force behind the first shark fin ban in, in Hawaii in the whole nation in 2010. And she travels to countless countries now in the Pacific and attempt to ban shark finning as in many places as she can. So thanks so much, Stephanie. Welcome. Thank you. All right. So how did you become involved in this um, initially? Like you're from Germany. How did this kind of come about, this shark fin uh, ban? Um, I first got involved with scuba diving like so many people do. I got interested in diving. Uh, as soon as I got certified, I made it my life uh, because I just loved it so much. I decided that why spend five days of the week doing something boring and then only have two days to enjoy yourself. I So I decided basically to make diving my life. And the more you dive, the more you learn, the more you start looking for the things that really interest you. And I was very interested in the larger animals, whales and dolphins and sharks. And, you know, one thing just leads to another. Eventually, I found myself um, having a shark diving business in Hawaii. And um, the, when you spend time in the water with sharks every day and read every book and watch every video, you can't help but evolve and educate yourself and just learn more and more about the issues and realize that my interest was moving more towards actually doing something to protect sharks than to just have fun. And fun was great for many, many years, and I love diving with sharks, but I also feel that you spend too much time in the water, then you miss out on the real work that needs to be done. And I just hit a point where I said, you know what, it's time to get out of the water and, and help 
sharks in a real meaningful way, not just talk about it and not just take pretty pictures and show them to people. It's just not enough. And right around that time, maybe within a few years, the first proposal to ban the fin trade was came up in Hawaii and I you know, basically just showed up in support and spoke on behalf of sharks. And that's how I ended up stumbling into policy work. I had no experience. I had no intention intention of, of pursuing that. But I found myself in a place where I was useful and people that I worked with, uh, the senator and his staff, they needed someone that was very much into sharks and that was me. And the rest I, I learned practically while while doing it. I immediately got involved. I learned that doing policy and, and maneuvering around the legislature was actually incredibly interesting and uh, challenging, and it became something I, I stuck with. I thought it would only be something I would do in Hawaii and then be done. But because it's, it succeeded, which, you know, we had no clue it would, it succeeded, then it became, okay, you know, it became this thought, where else can we take this? And uh, more people were interested in supporting me. And I just kind of went from island to island and state to state. And now it's become a little bit of, a, I don't know, my strong side. You know, I, I just, I learned a lot just by, through experience and through practical application. I'm not um, coming from an academic point of view or research. And I'm also not, you know, I don't have a college degree in, in politics. Right. But I just, you know, with all the time in the water, I, you know, I know sharks inside out and um, that brings some credibility to the subject. And then now I have a lot of experience working with policymakers and stakeholders, etc. And to, you throw all that together and it makes for a really good mix that, yeah. you know, it's relevant and it works. So why not do the one thing that seems to be most effective? So I stuck with it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the film uh, Extinction Soup depicts. It depicts you, was that 2010? Mm -hmm. when, yeah, when that band, yeah, uh, yeah, when that band was first presented to Congress and it doesn't look like you're a new timer. It doesn't look like that's your first time. It looks like you're very confident and calm and, and you know, the passion that you have for sharks is, uh, is very apparent. Well, there's no problem with, uh, with knowing about sharks and being passionate about sharks, but <laughs> everything else beyond that was extremely frightening. And, but I live by the motto, you know, fake it till you make it, you because go. what other choice do you have? You can show up and have fear, or you can, well, you can still have fear, but you still have to do it, and, um, you know, you just have to sort it out, and what, what, what's, what's your other choices? That's it. You can't wait for someone else to do it, and you kind of realize, too, that, um, you know, not everyone is a total expert on everything. I mean, I was the one person that knew the most about sharks, and it was pretty awesome that people would ask me about that. They, had, they also had no connections to the conservation community, and it forced me to really reach out to people that were working in this field that I hadn't known before. So, um, you know, you get a big challenge, it, it pushes you to another level, and, and I kind of enjoy that. It's always scary and unnerving, but 
I like the feeling of growing and, and being a little bit on that, that edge of like, oh, this is, you know, this is really pushing me because right. then I feel like I'm really accomplishing things. And if I, you stay in your comfort zone, then, you know, you just don't maximize what you can do. Yeah, there's no evolution, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the shark trade. I mean, you know, we mm -hmm. hear the different numbers. Um, but what we do know is sharks are being killed at a tremendous rate um, for their, mainly for their fins, for shark fin soup. Um, and that is the crux, again, that's the crux of the movie uh, Extinction Soup. Um, did you learn a lot when you were in the process of making that, or was there anything that you uncovered that surprised you? Um, we didn't, nothing surprising while we were making the film because the film was basically just using, you know, the footage that we had and, and told the story story of what had already happened. We were surprised to find uh, how many, how the volume of fins that were actually traveling through Hawaii, that was a big surprise. And, and being able to have footage of that, thanks to some uh, friends of mine from Germany that had, had just come through a few months before to do an, like an undercover story on the fin trade. And they had gone in and taken some footage, you know, with, you know, hidden cameras of a container load of dried fins in the harbor. I was able to use that and very quickly convince people that, look, this is not a, a theoretical problem, an abstract or, oh, it happened somewhere else. This is right in our harbor. And most people, that's all they needed to see is they, there was a container load, you know, with thousands of fins that represented however many sharks, most of them quite large animals, by judging by the size of the fins. So most people were shocked and, and really appalled by the fact that this was happening right in front of their door and they didn't know. Yeah. So that was a big surprise, but it was also important to have that and it actually made things easier to, to find that. The numbers you referred to, you know, global numbers of finning, they range, yeah. you know, for anywhere from 28 million per year to 100 million per year to 268 million per year. The reason why it varies so much is because the actual, let's say the 28 million, the lowest number is actual fins someone counted in a harbor, you know, and then compiled those numbers of actual scene. I could count them. That's the number. Then the 100 million is, you know, sort of extrapolating uh, what might be on the black market uh, based on what is reported as being exported versus what is being imported. There's a huge variance, you know, certain countries say we are, we export this much, but how come then your import number on the other end is only half of that. So there's, there's a discrepancy in import and export numbers. Oh, Plus okay. then everybody knows about unreported and illegal fishing. There's always a certain percentage that, you know, in every market, especially something that drives this high of a price, there is a huge unreported market, uh, endangered species products, you know, in general, people, you know, it's so, there's so much value, they will smuggle it in any way they can. So then, you know, the numbers keep changing. And then if somebody adds up all of the numbers they get possibly from harbors, how many fish sharks that actually landed per tape? day per week times this many harbors times this many days of the year well then you get a really high number so yeah. even if you take the lowest number let's take the very very lowest number 28 million sharks per year 
it's even that number to me is is um, hard to picture and yeah. hard hard to understand how anyone could think that that would be sustainable in any way. Doesn't matter what you think locally is okay. Some people say, well, we don't have that problem here. It, it's just 28 million and mostly for the trade of fins is not okay, period. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things, yeah, even the very lowest number, mm -hmm. and that's, we should talk about how, because you know a lot of people might think, hey, sharks are just fish, and fish, I've seen them, uh, you know, how many times they reproduce and how often uh, the offspring they give, that's not the case. The gestation yeah. period is different, the amount of offspring they have is completely different. So it takes a long time, especially for these higher, um, you know, these organisms that are higher on the, in the food chain, it takes a lot longer for them to, uh, you know, maintain their population versus something lower down. Yeah, I think an easy way to understand it is, is, is the difference between rabbits and lions, let's say, or wolves. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know that rabbits uh, or anything lower on the food chain that is considered a prey animal, they reproduce a lot faster, especially the plant eaters. They, you know, they reproduce fast, often quick. When they're very young, they start to have litter after litter. And it's, it's similar. You have um, fish that are small, you know, that are lower on the food chain. They have, they start reproducing maybe in their first year with, and they all have thousands and millions of eggs. And they do this every year, every year. Sharks are more like the large predators, the top predators on land. They often have to be in their teenage years or, or older before they ever have young. Mm -hmm. um, and then they will have, sharks will have, they have a litter. They have a litter just like lions and, 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 and wolves would have. It could be 10, 15 sharks, the highest maybe 30 in certain larger sharks. Mm. And they may only have that every year and a half to two years. So when you're taking out a whole decade worth of growth, uh, um, let's say you take all of the, the medium-sized sharks out, you, it takes a long time for the young ones to grow old enough to be replacing that. Right. And then it still take decades. So the straight answer is that animals that evolved to be predators, top predators, did not evolve to be hunted. Mm -hmm. So when you start hunting them, there's no way that the numbers remain the same. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an important distinction to make that not everyone understands. No, uh, of course not, because it's, uh, it's, not con it's not something that's being taught, and, and it makes sense to think that all fish are the same. But, you know, all fish are not the same, just like all mammals are not the same. Mm -hmm. So there are roughly 350 species of sharks. Is there a particular species or subspecies that is the most vulnerable? Well, there's if you added the rays to them, uh, the large rays, then there's they say there's 450 to 500, and you know the large rays meaning the the big ones like the manta rays and the sure. mobula rays, um, they they they've it's the same as sharks, maybe even worse. They also get hunted for their fins and they reproduce even slower. Mm -hmm. So, as a general um, idea of what's the most endangered is the larger bodied sharks that because their their fins are larger and they're worth more and also they the ones that are more out in the pelagic area 
um, are the ones that end up on long lines because that's where the long line fishermen are. So that's, you know, wherever there's the most fishing going on and then sharks become bycatch and now they're even targeted. So things like thresher sharks and hammerhead sharks, uh, the big ones, you know, they, they're great whites, mako, um, oceanic white tips, dusky sharks, um, and, and so on. They are the ones um, that are, that are um, threatened. Um, and then also you have certain species like um, the basking shark and whale sharks. They just are not that many in the first place because there's just a couple, you know, there's, they're really big and they're not meant to be in high numbers, maybe similar to whales. And they might be, they're probably not taking from meat, but their fins are so large and so worth so much because they're being um, used for display purposes, not to eat. So a whale shark fin, you know, the giant dorsal fin looks really good on someone's wall or in a restaurant to advertise the soup. So, and plus then they, they die for other reasons too. They get caught in nets and, you know, hit by ships and, or they consume too much plastic these days. Some of the big whales that are uh, filter feeders, they'll die from that. So, you know, they get hit from, for many different reasons, but generally speaking, it's the larger species. And then some of the smaller species that are really being hit hard by the shark meat trade, they are probably also um, starting to, to really suffer. It's a little harder to count the numbers because often they're deep water sharks. And, you know, you can only really right. gauge that by how much did you catch 10 years ago? How much do you catch now? Well, I guess the numbers are going down. So must not be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and that's a very, so I've often thought that, you know, hey, if, if rhinos disappear, we might not know about it, where we are right now in the States, at least where I am. You might mm -hmm. not know about it for years. You might not know about it right away. However, the same is not true of sharks disappear. There's mm -hmm. been a lot of concern that the oceans could completely collapse if the apex predator is gone. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to that about how you feel that things could change irreversibly if sharks were gone from the ocean? Yeah, I have to defend rhinos and elephants too because <laughs> um, because we might not think that they're as important now because we have basically their ecosystems are basically non-existent. If we still depended on you know large animals like uh, elephants and rhino to um, be a crucial part of giant planes, you know, then we would have the same impact if elephants don't knock down the trees, then the little guys can't have the food. And if they don't graze here and don't do this, then, you know, there's always a chain reaction. Every animal, especially the large predators, they have a huge impact. The reason we don't see it on land is because we've already put them into parks and limited where they can go. And we're messing with what grows and we cut things down and we plant things. So yeah. there's no natural system for them anymore to truly, um, you know, show the, I mean, people that study them see the impact, but it's not, we don't feel it because we don't live in that kind of world anymore. We don't live in a place where we have to let the nature balance itself it's a very it's a luxury now we we decide to do that in certain um national parks like yosemite where they reintroduced wolves in right. order to change the way that there were effects by taking the wolves out that they couldn't control they couldn't fix it they couldn't fix it and it went all the way down to what happened to the river and the the small trees and the beaver and the deer it all was connected, and even though they knew what the problem was, they didn't know how to fix it, and the best way to fix it was to reintroduce wolves. 
So apply that same system to the ocean. How are you going to do that? If we once we lose sharks, there's nothing else that can replace what sharks do in the ocean, and we certainly can't breed them and then reintroduce them. So there's no fix for it once they're gone. And sharks basically, there is a whole chain reaction that comes down to not just for food security. Let's just say if you take sharks out, then all your medium-sized predators will explode. They will then, could potentially then eat all of the plant eaters who are usually eating the algae off the reef. Then the algae explodes and then the corals die and, you know, it's just, it keeps going and Sharks seem to have that effect in different ecosystems in different ways. Uh, seagrass beds, you know, tiger sharks hunt turtles. And when turtles don't feel the pressure from uh, predators, from tiger sharks, they start meandering and only eating the best bits here and there. And they don't graze down certain areas that they should be grazing down. So the seagrass beds change, which then affects how little fish breed, et cetera, et cetera. So... You know, and even just the presence of predators uh, that they've studied on reefs, um, when you when there is pressure of something hunting you, the fish populations stay really strong and really sharp and really quick. Whereas if there's no pressure, then first of all, the, the weaker ones start breeding, they get, you know, they can certain diseases can spread much uh, further because oh, let's say, you know, a sick dolphin, if there are sharks around, that sick dolphin is going to be tagged. He's out. But if there are no sharks around, that dolphin can pass on its infection to the whole family. You right. know, and um, so it's just there's a reason why we have evolved and sharks have evolved for 400 million years, um, and have it perfected. The ocean is such an incredibly complex system um, at every level on the shores with coral reefs into the depth. And just look at our planet. It's 70% ocean or water. And we ignore that. We just pretend as if it doesn't matter. You know, It's like, oh, yeah, let's just keep dumping things into it. Let's take stuff yeah. out until we feel like there's a real problem. But it's it's this the slow boiling frog, right? We we get used to the new normal. Okay, now it's okay to see reefs with only one shark. Well, then soon you don't see any. That becomes normal. And then you see two sharks and you're like, wow, shark populations are increasing when you really should be seeing 50 sharks on every single dive. So we, we just get used to what's normal. And before we know it, it's, it's going to be at a point where, well, it's just wrecked for good, you know? And right. at that point, Good luck trying to fix things in the ocean because you can't build fences. You can't corral animals around. You can't plant like you can on land, replanting trees and things. And, you know, and we can't even get to most places in the ocean. We can't get deeper than 200 or 300 feet on a regular basis. It requires a submarine, you know. So um, if things were like that on land, it would be incredibly difficult. You know, we wouldn't have agriculture. We wouldn't have all that. So. It just it blows my mind how we can keep trying to ignore the ocean. It's because it's out of sight, out of mind. You look outside, the ocean looks fine. The surface looks the same as it always has. Sure, you know, yeah. you, you can't see it until you go to the beach and you see all the plastic trash. Or you are a diver and you go to a reef that you saw 20 years ago. And, you know, I don't even like going to reefs anymore that I used to see because I know that none of them are better. 
there is no reef that well there might be a few that have gotten better but generally speaking there is you know devastation and a decline almost everywhere have you seen that and first i appreciate you cleaning up you know the yeah. the thing about um the elephants and, and rhinos because that makes great yeah. sense i never even considered that um and yeah absolutely like that is we've designed this world so that their their existence is something that we might not even be aware of at times whereas yeah I, yeah it's a luxury now yeah. we, we choose to have them around because we want to have them around but um we see nothing wrong with um taking out you know if we lose certain species what does it matter to me you know i, I saw a questionnaire the other day on on tv where oh it was a it was a real funny one. It was, um, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel who asked people in the streets if they were, would be upset if um, Homo sapiens would disappear. Of course, mm, people didn't yeah. know what Homo <laughs> sapiens were. And there were several people saying, nah, wouldn't bother me. I don't know one. So, you know, what do I care? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my God. But I mean, that just goes to show that if people think they don't have a direct benefit from an animal, right. um, then they can't see the value and that's, you know, I, that's how far we've gotten away from understanding nature. I so. found that a lot of people respond more towards their own health. And, you, and you've mentioned this before in some of your yeah. interviews. But, hey, you know, let's take the whole conservation of sharks out of it. The fact mm -hmm. that people are actually eating sharks is very dangerous to them. They're high in mercury. I mean, this is not a surprise to people, or it shouldn't be at least. But I find that that angle is another angle to take. Because yeah, people can I mean, be very concerned about their own health. Some people, um, but people want to do something and eat it. It's, you know, people smoke cigarettes and people do all sorts of things in, 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 in other countries. You know, people even eat things that they know is bad for them. If It, it has to be almost to the point of you're going to keel over when you eat it, uh, dangerous for people to not want to eat it. Um, and the shark eating shark is only dangerous if you let it accumulate if you eat a lot of you know just like any other fish if you eat a lot of tuna you can get mercury poisoning uh, but you might not even know that you have it until somebody tells you or until they figure it out and um, it's not yeah uh, it's again it's like it's not an immediate punishment if you ate it and immediately threw up that would be something yeah. different you know um, and also the, because the perception still is, why not eat sharks if we eat other fish? What, what makes them so special? You know, why shouldn't we eat them? And, um, you know, that's, that's generally the attitude. And uh, it's, it, it's hard to say why they should have the privilege over a bluefin tuna. Bluefin tuna is extremely endangered as well. Right. So I think we have to, you know, we have to look at them all being worth something. And, and they're all important. I just happen to have picked sharks because I know the most about them and they are the least represented animal because they're not so well liked and so they they need all the help we can get. They're really, you know, um, they would also, and also for the fact that they are iconic and um, they have a lot of battles to, to overcome, you know, the between the public perception and... Um, you know, the fact that they, that um, now people eat them more and more and people see value in them. Most people look at sharks and see money. And um, that I don't know if that's ever going to change. It, it may not, but we still have to drive on the fact that 
you know, for the common good, like him or don't like them, they're necessary and we need them. And as a matter of fact, they do such an important job for us that, you know, we we should put money into protecting them because we could never, with millions and billions of dollar replace, dollars replace what they do now. So if you just want to look at it from an economic point of view, you can hate them. You can be totally um, not interested in the in the ocean, but from an economic point of view, it's cheaper to protect them now than to try and figure out how to replace them um, down the road, yeah. even just for food reasons. You you mentioned uh, briefly a bit ago about how you wouldn't want to go back to a lot of your old dive spots. Did you have you seen the decline firsthand? Have you oh, seen yeah. that change over time? Of course, and and it's you know it's hard to know what what gets to to reefs. I mean, it could be multiple things. It could be climate change. Or it could be just the pressure of too many tourists trampling you know coral reefs or uh, bleaching events or all of the above. I, there's only a few places I've been to that have remained the same because people protected, started protecting those areas 15 years ago um, or that have recovered because there was an interest in that particular reef. Um, I've seen one reef that was in horrible shape in Fiji and because they declared it a marine protected area and because of the sharks and because of the shark tours, it also benefited the, the reef because the sharks are protected and there's no fishing. Suddenly the place is just booming with fish and the local villages are um, really benefiting because they, in the spillover from that area, fish are now in, all over the reefs around that area. And also um, the, the community is benefiting because they're making money off of tourists that are coming to see the sharks. So it's good for their economy, good for their sustainability, and it was good for the reef. But those sort of cases are few and far between, and it comes down to one or two super engaged people making that happen. Hmm. That just despite of what a people wanted to do or thought was reasonable, they pushed it through at some point, 10 years ago or so. And just despite of what everyone else wanted to do, they made it happen, they got the community on board. And, you know, sometimes you have to do things even though you don't get everyone on board. And, and then when it's good, then everybody says, great, that's awesome. We're so glad you did that. <laughs> you know? right. And it's a lot like that with policy, too. I think that sometimes you have people objecting and then you realize that if you can just get it done, sometimes you have to have the laws first and then get everyone else on board when they see that the sky is not falling, nobody's losing money. This is just, we, we can exist with this in, in place. You know, sometimes you just have to say, this just needs to happen. We should not have, you know, plastic water bottles. We should not have certain things. And yes, there might be some people who are inconvenienced, but we got to do it anyway. And that's the same with the shark fin trade. Yeah, there might be a few people losing money by not being able to sell them or sell them in a restaurant, but the greater good is, you know, we know we have to do it. Right. Yeah. And everyday industries collapse and people, you know, people find a way, you know, mm -hmm. what, you know, let's say the people who are selling those shark's fins can now turn into, you know, having tours or something or the whole country can start doing tours. Uh, it it well, seems to work out. Yeah. I mean, so in some cases you can't do tourism everywhere and fishing is, you know, a thing to itself. And I understand that, that people like to make a living fishing and, and it's honorable and all of that. 
uh, hardly anyone makes a complete living only off of thins. So it's more of an adjustment than a replacement. You know, it's not like tomorrow I'm out of a job if I can't get fins. It's the additional money that's being made from the so-called byproduct of fins. I, I don't buy it that it's a byproduct in most cases anyway, but it's still being called a byproduct. So so, so in the past five years, when since Extinction Soup has come out, have you seen any changes in public policy? Have you seen any changes in awareness? Have you seen any positive trends? I think that, you know, Extinction Soup and then a couple other really good films and uh, campaigns all worked together mm-hmm. uh, to, there, w- there was a whole series of fin bands that um, happened after Hawaii. And that wasn't because of Extinction Soup, that was more because of the policy that we passed. Because um, Hawaii kind of kicked in the door for other states to just emulate the whole same law. So very quickly, within two years, Guam and the Marianas Islands and uh, Marshall Islands, California, Oregon, Washington, all of those places basically took the same law and introduced it and passed it in record time. So within two years, bam, a whole bunch of places uh, went from no finning, which everybody is, of course, most places don't want the practice of finning, but it's unenforceable. They went to actual trade bans and, and commercial production of shark fins. So now there is there are 12 U.S. states and three ter- territories that have passed that law. And it kind of stalled for a while, and there need to be a few more. But now, you know, we're working in Florida, and there is a national bill in Congress that's trying to make it through. I saw that. So it's still... It's still every domino is important to kick over and to kick over and eventually you kick over the big one. And so it created a lot of momentum and it also gave people a really good tool to to use because, you know, once you set the precedent that one state did it and that state didn't suffer, um, you know, economically from from stopping it, then it's much easier in the next state to do. So that was the biggest outcome, I think. Um, I took the film around, you know, to lots of film festivals and, you know, for a whole year I was in all all sorts of places. And the response was always really positive. And I I, want to say that a lot of people were affected by it. And I still have people contacting me and wanting to help because they saw it. Or, I mean, for example, you, you saw it and now I'm talking to you. So um, I've been surprised because I've had, you know, there's this trickling effect from, from the film that I, I'm always surprised how, how I'm still benefiting from it in, in my work. And, um, yeah, so you never know what something does. You, you know, we never knew what the bill was going to do in Hawaii, and we did it anyway, and, and look what happened. Right. Yeah, you've got to keep plugging along, like <laughs> yeah. you mentioned earlier. I, you just don't know. You can't. You can't predict how great it might be. So do it anyway, even because people like to be very um, gloomy about the issue. And you know, I sometimes get gloomy too because I feel like if we don't get this solved in the next five years, we might be done with sharks. Oh, wow. I, I might be wrong. I mean, it's just you know, I just can't see how these numbers keep going. And um, that you know. Of course, you can't say that across the board because there will always be certain locations where there are more sharks and mm-hmm. sharks 
live and breed and die in one area. So it's not like if we wipe out sharks in one country, they'll be wiped out in the other one too. But if we don't get a hang of, of this trade, then the fishing vessels will just keep moving to the places where there are sharks. And, you know, the ocean has pretty much no borders except laws and then the laws have to be enforced that's the one thing that that we have um that controls what is being done out there so yeah what what is the next big domino both in the states locally and also uh you know international that you're looking to topple over I think it's oh, it's a it's a little bit hard to say. I, there people are working at different fronts. Um, more species are making it onto the CITES listings every year or every time they meet. It's a little bit slow because it's one or two species at a time, and then all the members have to agree to actually do something about it. But it certainly helps to establish have a consensus on on what species are actually endangered. Um, then there are uh, organizations working on the consumer side, you know, um, in, in Asia where the soup is eaten. Um, there are some groups really focusing on trying to get the consumption down, and that had an effect. Um, the consumption in China went way down thanks to um, groups like Wild Aid who really worked on, they really targeted um, the Chinese consumer and, you know, enlisted celebrities to speak there. So that has really gone down. Unfortunately, while it goes down in one place, then suddenly it began in Malaysia and in um, Vietnam, Vietnam, and right, suddenly yeah. the numbers go up there. So it's it yeah, it's a little bit tricky because there's successes and then there's oh another bummer. You know, now it's become popular, more popular in Japan. It's like whack-a-ball. Uh, it's not necessarily. I think that that's people keep saying that too about you know the fin bands. Oh, you shut it down here, it's just going to move over there. It's not necessarily because it might have evolved in that place anyway. You know, China could have stayed at the numbers they were, and then Malaysia would have come up anyways. It's it's not because you suppress it in one place, it pops up another. It's just become something that the middle class pursues because it's a status symbol and it's something new, and they want to have it and they want to serve it. Right. And people have more money to spend, and you know, it's it has to become culturally. Um, it almost needs to be the the pressure from your own culture telling you that you shouldn't eat it anymore because um, it it's not necessary. You know, if it's if people don't understand that it's an environmental problem, then maybe it, there needs to be a consensus that well, you know, our values tell us that we shouldn't be doing that anymore. So that's a lot harder to do than just coming up with a law that bans it, which is not the nicest way to do things. You know, it's not yeah. it's a little bit not undemocratic to just say stop it and it's banned. But maybe in some places that's what has to happen. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't. Mo- a lot of people don't like banning anything across the board because they feel that's a little bit heavy-handed. But compare it to ivory, and we've already seen where that goes. If you if you don't completely ban the product, there's just no way to control the the poaching and the transport. So with fins, it's, it's similar to that. Yeah. Um, so the next domino, you asked me about the next domino. Oh. I think that we should always, you know, we're trying to focus on things that are doable and that should be done and should be knocked over. Um, 
the next biggest domino in my fantasy world would be that, you know, China and Hong Kong makes a move and says we ban, um, you know, the sale of shark fin soup. That would be pretty awesome. But that doesn't stop us from, you know, having the responsibility to clean up our own backyard. So I believe that, you know, the, the national bill is a big one. Um, ban, you know, basically stopping the, the fin trade through the U.S., the import and the export and the production um, that's, that bill is, is super important and it needs the support of the state bills and that's why Florida is incredibly important and I, that's why I'm focusing on Florida right now because it is the one state that has the most um, import and export of fins, not for consumption but you know because in Florida there are not many restaurants that sell it but it just um, because of how fins move through the world um, Florida has become a key port probably and this is where your whack-a-mole thing applies is because California and Texas basically banned it so the big ports are closing their doors to fins so now you know um, Florida is apparently the the hub and politically Florida is incredibly important it's one of the biggest states it's um, you know has a lot of influence on on what happens in Congress. So to me, I feel like that's an incredibly underrated domino, <laughs> but I think it's a huge one and that le that will help us kick over the big one, which would be the U.S. taking a stand nationally. Yeah. That would send a message to other countries and, you know, and so on and so on. The, the, Euro the European Union has some really big problems on their hands too. Um, that's a different different domino over there. Um, so, you know, it can get overwhelming when you think about, you know, the, the international interest in shark meat, you know, meat, you know, in, in Australia and South Africa, they're very interested in selling flake, which is part of what they've always served and flake is shark. And, you know, to go after something that people really like to eat, it's a lot harder than going after shark fins because nobody eats them except a certain subgroup. Right, yeah. So I try not to think of that. I know ideally we would stop catching sharks for meat and for fins, but right now I feel that we can still we can save the most sharks if we address the fin trade because nothing catches nothing kills as many sharks by the millions and millions as the shark fin trade. So I'm looking at what's the biggest impact we could have, and that still remains the fin trade. Yeah, yeah, you got to prioritize. Let's, let's, yeah, I, let's talk I, a little bit about that. About about um, you know, a lot of people could be eating shark stateside and not even know it. Right? right, you know, it's often called whitefish. It's called rock salmon. What else have you seen a shark, you know, shark described as, or excuse me, disguised as? Uh, there is a really long list uh, depending on the country. So I'll go the the English ones. Well, the one that is the most, I mean, obvious one. It's flake. Um, in Europe. Um, and maybe also in the U.S., I'm not sure, for a long time, they, you know, and, and still, if you eat fish and chips and it's not specified what kind of fish you're actually eating, it could very well be shark. I mean, it was used very widely in the in Europe as in fish and chips. Um, they, dogfish, grayfish, whitefish, lemonfish, rock, hmm. salmon, 
gummy, sea ham, <laughs> tofu shark, uh, ocean fish, ocean fillet, imitation crab, crab meat. Um, I think that's mostly made from rays. Um, yeah, and it just that, that's just for the English names, and there's French names and Italian wow. names and German names and Greek names. So you know, it, it's it's a matter of marketing when they don't want you to know that it's a I um a shark, then they'll just name it something else. Well, and I know scallops are oftentimes made from rays. Um, really, scallops? Yeah, at oh, least for the, yeah the the punched out yeah the round yeah, kind of yeah. like a cookie cutter. Uh, mm -hmm. utensil people use so what about um sharks can also be found in beauty products or everyday products um right products brands anything people should be aware of should avoid um well the the ingredients I, I wouldn't know how to point out particular brands but the two ingredients you, that you want to look out for is squalene which is uh it's an emollient that they use in uh skincare products and it's also supposed to be a natural antioxidant. Um, squalene can be made from shark oil liver, a uh, shark liver oil, or um, it can also be made from plant sources. And it's equally as good. It can be made from olives and wheat germ and rice bran. And so it's like anything else. When you're looking at, when you see your shampoo or cream or whatever, and you look at it and it says squalene, it should specify from olives or from such and such. If it doesn't, then it could just as well be hmm. shark liver oil. And then the other one would be um, shark cartilage, okay. uh, which would be mostly in supplements. And uh, people believing that shark cartilage can help your joints. And in some instances, people have spread the news or spread the rumor that it might actually help cancer. And that was never really proven. That was one company you know basically claiming that hey sharks don't seem to get cancer so yeah. you know let's eat them they might be good for cancer so I mean, it wasn't quite that simple but it wasn't based on you know extensive scientific study it was just let's crunch you know let's sell this product because it's available it's marketing at that point yeah mm -hmm. yeah I remember so those generally are the two things um i think squ Shark squalene, oftentimes I think it's in lipstick, I think is one of them. And um, because, you know, it has to, lipstick has to be smooth and shouldn't dry out and all that. So um, it's just basically oil. It's a type of oil is what, what it is. And olives have the greatest oil. So why not use plant sources? It's a great way to support an industry. Why, why take something from a wild animal when you can actually grow it? just makes no sense i was gonna say you could say that about a lot of things why not just use yeah. plant uh, based products if it's equally as good and and you know we just have to start getting over this idea that we can take things from wild animals if you and they call it harvesting and it's like you don't harvest if you didn't grow it you don't say you're harvesting you know right. you're not you know you harvest ivory no you you don't harvest ivory you're hunting it and you are killing the animal to get that product and that's a wild animal that is now no longer, you know, there. And, and there's a reason why we've domesticated certain animals and grown them to harvest, which is, you know, it's not a pleasant thing either. But they're animals that are plant eaters and that can be, you know, grown and multiplied and in great numbers. But you, hardly any, I don't think we have many meat-eating um, animals that we, we domesticate and use because it's just too energy um, intensive to, to try and grow that. So, you know, 
that's just looking at it from a very you know, logical angle. Never mind, you know, what's right and what's wrong and what we should do. But yeah, it makes no sense to be to be using meat eaters right. <laughs> to be putting into cosmetics. It's insane. It's a little bit like when they used the, the whale oil and nearly wiped out all the the whales mm-hmm. until somebody came up with an, an equal product and it luckily it was stopped in time for some of the you know whales to whale species to recover look how long it long it took it's just now that they're seeing some of the numbers coming back and that's you know decades later yeah and like you alluded to first whales are Sharks aren't on the same level as whales. People are afraid of sharks. Sharks have a much more uphill battle than whales did and do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's harder to get people to care for sharks because there's still a lot of fear and and maybe even hate for sharks. Mm-hmm. So it's harder to get people to want to protect them or it's harder to get them to come on your side even, even if they understand sustainability. It's just... You have to make a much stronger case on on that side to overcome the well. I just don't care, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, so we talked a little bit about things we shouldn't do, things we shouldn't mm-hmm. eat. What is something that people can do? What is needed the most? Uh, what would help advocates to sustain the pressure and help push this issue just over the threshold? Oh, you know, it, I've thought about that, and I I wanted to answer that in a really easy way. Um, Everyday, it's very hard for everyday people to get involved in actually saving sharks um, one-on-one or in person. But generally speaking, we need to start looking at um, saving sharks and, and protecting the ocean, not as a nonprofit charity. We do it on the weekend. These are volunteers. They just should do it because they care. It needs to really become a, um, a seriously supported and funded effort. So I hate to just talk about money, but when it comes down to advocacy work, especially for the ocean, um, it is funding for for ocean conservation within the philanthropy world. I think out of all of the U.S., I, I may be wrong with this number. We might have to look it up. But from what I heard is, is all out of all philanthropic giving, there's only 2% goes to the environment. Out of that 2%, you can imagine how little goes to the ocean and out of whatever that percentage is, you can imagine how little goes to sharks. Mm -hmm. So there is no government funding. There is no um, big private interests in protecting sharks. Um, And even the nonprofits that, that exist, they're constantly struggling to get a piece of that, that funding pie that's out there. And it's a limited, it's a limited, you know, amount. So when organizations, have you know request donations and and i know it sounds lame but money can help people a long ways of sustaining pressure and building up campaigns and actually running campaigns professionally like a regular um brand would do Mm -hmm. you know with with advertising with pr with these things are important it's not we're not going out and actually rescuing a shark on the beach and then putting it in a pool and it's not as simple as saying, let's just nurse them back to health and throw them in. It's not that hands-on stuff. We actually need to look at shark conservation almost like um, de- developing a brand and, and promoting it and saying, you know, it's, it's those sort of expenses. Being able to have lawyers and advertising specialists and PR specialists working on this, 
would really help because in the end, if we raise the awareness in the public and we um, shine more light on it, then the policymakers are a lot more likely to care about it. When we go in to try and champion a bill, we're always scrambling to get more and more constituents need to be for this. And it's just a struggle to get people to, you know, stand up for it and, and pick up the phone and voice their, their concerns. That's always going to be hard, but it's a lot harder when all you have is five volunteers walking around trying to knock on doors than if you had a professional approach. And it's a real frustrating issue because a lot of um, advocacy groups eventually fail or they, they give up because they just can't maintain the pressure. They can't be as effective. So the support needs to be there from the public because it's not going to be taken care of by the government unless we establish laws. And even then, it's not something that we can wait for someone else to do. This is, this is really going to be grassroots. We're going to do it, and we have to do it now. And the people that are willing to put the time in and dedicate themselves to it, all they need is they need some public support. They need people to you know, help on social media. It's actually very important you know, to... to um, follow groups and to spread their campaign news to you know forward their donation requests or when they have fundraisers or when they have anything going on you can support on social media to spread the message because i mean this that's a powerful tool so pay attention and get informed and and help groups that are spearheading these campaigns in any way you can and if all you can do is, is just repost their Instagram posts, that's already something. If you have a few dollars to give, don't think that it doesn't matter. It really matters a lot. And, you know, when the time comes and something happens in your area, let's, for example, in Florida right now, it's very important that people clue in and realize that, you know, we have to track this bill, we have to track this this campaign and then lend our hand whenever we can, which means send in letters, emails, phone calls to your representatives. And if they follow, for example, our campaign, we will let everyone know when the time is right, where to call, what to do. So we make it very simple. But you have to plug in. You have to plug into the cause and feel some responsibility. It's If it's in your state, get involved. It's never... It never takes a lot of effort. It just takes lots of people to get involved, and then we can do something with it. So, yeah, it's like everything else that, you know, any other movement, we need people and we need funding. And never, nobody ever flat out says we need money, but, you know, unfortunately, it makes everything so much easier. Yeah. So how does someone stay involved? How does someone... Um follow you uh, whether it's on social media or you know yeah it's it's easy shark allies on every platform i mean we're on instagram facebook and and we don't do much twitter but we're on it Um, we we don't we're not very active on that platform and we have a website shark allies and on the website it, it it outlines the different campaigns we have and you can read up on it um, and we, we, you know, very act, we're very active on Instagram on, on d- daily posts on what's happening, where we're moving next. And it's very easy to find out what we're up to and what we need. If you, if you're willing to check in with us every once in a while, we're easy to find. Well, Stephanie, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I will do whatever I can 
helps the word uh, for you yeah. and your organizations. Thank Honestly, you. you have my dream job of you know helping some of the most important uh, animals on the planet, uh, and you're doing very important work. So thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for for having me and for taking so much time to talk through this. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care. <laughs>